A curmudgeon is defined as an irritable older person who hates hypocrisy and is not afraid to point it out. Other words to describe curmudgeons include grumpy, irascible, cynical, and irreverent. All in all, curmudgeons are not people of bright hope or optimism, and so you wouldn't expect to encounter a curmudgeon in the Bible, except that we do. He's known as the teacher, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Today on Groundwork, we will begin to explore this strange and rather unsettling biblical book. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we get to get to Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, uh, we're welcoming our listeners to a short series, just a three-part series, that's going to cover the major themes of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the book has 12 chapters. We're not going to hit everything, but there are some major themes that weave through the whole book, and each of the three programs in this series will pick up on one of those themes. So this book is uh, considered a wisdom book. Proverbs is a book of wisdom Mm -hmm. as well. We see that often with the wisdom literature as well. But in this situation, like you said in the introduction, this teacher, he has a very dim view of life, kind of a dismal view. It's not optimism. It's not, yeah, yeah, happy, happy, joy, joy. It is more sober and more sometimes cynical, I'd say. Yeah, a dim view indeed. And I think, Daryl, that tempts us to look away from this book or we're tempted to pick up. There are a few places of brighter sentiments, including the very end of the book in chapter 12, which we'll get to in the third program of this series. So it's tempting just to scoop up the somewhat brighter parts and let them eclipse the darker parts. But that's just not going to work. So we're going to have to take this book head on, unsettling though it may be. And indeed, the the voice we encounter uh, is that of what we would describe as a curmudgeon. So I think of grumpy people when you talk about curmudgeons. I mean, it seems like we have a lot of those curmudgeonly kind of guys in history. Yep. Um, Oscar Wilde, Gore Vidal, William F. Buckley, and H.L. Mencken. And in reform circles, we may remember a Calvinist curmudgeon named Peter DeVries. Peter DeVries, yeah. He was a novelist who uh, wrote some pretty good but very cynical and dark novels coming out of the Reformed tradition. Some of us might also remember the TV news show 60 Minutes, which has been on for a long time. Yep. And it used to always conclude with that figure of Andy Rooney who always concluded about a four-minute segment in which he made wry and usually very cynical observations on various aspects of culture. But, you know, those those names you mentioned, Vidal and Buckley and Mencken, DeVries, Rooney, they aren't exactly a who's who of religious figures. In fact, curmudgeons usually skewer and take a cynical view of religion along with everything else. So you wouldn't expect a curmudgeon to show up in the Bible. And yet we do. We see one right here. And we're going to look right at it here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to these words. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. That's the opening of the book, and it's a doozy. Um 
Meaningless, meaningless. That's a, a current translation, Daryl, in quite a few different Bibles. Some of us maybe remember older translations that had vanity, 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 vanity. all is vanity. I remember that growing up. The actual Hebrew word there is the word chevel. It's a very puny word. It sounds more like somebody clearing their throat than a word chevel. The literal meaning of chevel is breath. Vapor, just so much hot air. And when I've preached on this, Daryl, I've said, you know what? The, the best translation of uh, Hevel is it's, it's, you know, it's like P-H-H-H-T. And that's what he says life is. All of life, what's it come down to? It's nothing. It's nothing. It adds to nothing. I mean, the world just keeps going. Sun rises, sun sets, and everything goes back to the way it was the day before. So it can be a repetitiveness, a monotony that goes on and on, but the same thing every day. And so the that you're referring to, it helps us to understand that we shouldn't put too much value into what's happening in life. It's kind of a sobering view of life. It's not an idealistic rose color in my eyeglasses or in my shades kind of view. <laughs> These are definitely not rose colored glasses. He goes on in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 1. Uh, so you just said, Daryl, you know, things just, it's monotony. Everything is the same. So he says, is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So there's no such thing as novelty. Everything's the same. You think you came up with a new idea? Somebody thought it up a long time ago. Forget it. And you're not going to be remembered. You know, the old saying is we all die twice. We die when we stop breathing, and we die when the last person who remembered us dies and then it's as though we had never existed. That's how this book opens. You know, what's interesting about that is that in philosophy classes, when I took ancient, medieval, or modern philosophy, there's always the next philosopher who says, hey, forget what that other person said. I got the new idea for you right here. You need to pay attention to this. And it actually is only an adaptation to the same idea. And scripture is clear where there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, just because I had a new idea, it might be nuanced, but I can't just believe that, that I have a brand new original idea that no one's ever thought of before. And the writer is trying to let people know hey, you got, if you're thinking idealistic about that, then you probably should come out of the clouds. I've often thought that in terms of theology, it's sort of like, you know, you think you got a new theological idea? I bet Augustine thought it up in the fourth century. Just look it up, you know, <laughs> third century, whatever it was. On the uh, comedy program Saturday Night Live, there's a character, a, re a recurring character named Debbie Downer. And Debbie Downer, on various sketches, Debbie Downer would be at an amusement park. Debbie Downer would be at a dinner party. Debbie Downer's at a class reunion. Debbie Downer's at a wedding. But no matter where Debbie Downer goes, she's a storm cloud on the horizon because no matter what positive thing somebody says, Debbie turns it into a negative. And then they have the sound effect, you know, wah, wah. <laughs> you know, every time she says something sad, it's like wah, wah. And everybody around her just sort of gets depressed until they can't even stand being around her. So for those of you who are a new part of this generation, I was thinking about the movie Inside Out. There are five personalities, and one of them happens to be sadness. So oh. Joy is trying to cheer sadness up, which doesn't make any sense. So they have the same memory. They're like, hey, I remember when we were on the swing. Joy says that. And then sadness says, oh, yeah, that's where we fell and we bumped our head, and we started crying. And It's just like the downer thing that you're saying. And it's really interesting how those situations look different to different people for different reasons. 
If you really do know a Debbie Downer or a teacher type, um, we didn't mention that, by the way, but the Hebrew word for the teacher, the author of this book is Kohelet, Kohelet. which is preacher or teacher, but we're going to go with teacher in this series. But if you meet someone like the teacher, a Debbie Downer, you know, you just kind of eventually kind of walk away. Either that or you get sucked into their negativity. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have much choice but to walk away because it's just too heavy. But again, somebody like this, we believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote this book and it's in the Bible. What do we make of that? What accounts for these uh, dark, dark musings? Well, we'll continue to think about that in just a moment. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging deeply into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, we said earlier that Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom tradition of the Bible. But as we've already seen, overall, the, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, takes a pretty dim view of life. But since this is a wisdom book, maybe there's some merit, something good that he could say about wisdom and the pursuit of it. Let's dig deeper into chapter one for this. It says, I said to myself, look. I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I apply myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So that's the end of chapter one. Does it get any better in chapter two? Let's see. Uh, verse 14 in chapter two. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise must die too. Hmm. Of course, he's pointing out that the wise person and the fool are both going to die and they're both are forgotten. So don't make big deal out of being wise or gaining the knowledge uh, because, I mean, Scripture tells us that knowledge puffs up anyway. So you can't make a big deal out of what you gain for yourself in knowledge or wisdom because you're going to end up passing away anyway. It's all going to be meaningless. Now, we will say that there will be eventually in this book a few more positive things in the, uh, about wisdom that in the short run, at least, it's still better to be wise than foolish. But the teacher here keeps taking the long view. You know, in the short run, fools might suffer for their folly, but in the long run, doesn't make much difference. Both the fool and the wise person uh, breathe their last breath at some point. So what about pleasure? How about just trying to enjoy life? Um, you know, what about having a good time? Uh, we're still in Ecclesiastes 2, and the teacher addresses this as well. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Uh, that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, 
but I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. By the way, some people have theorized that the teacher was Solomon or somebody who might have been like Solomon. And the references we've seen in the last couple of passages about being a king in Jerusalem and being the greatest in Jerusalem sometimes adds fodder to the idea. This is either Solomon or somebody who wrote this is kind of putting these words in Solomon's mouth. But in any event, wisdom and folly kind of come out in the wash. Pleasure, hmm, that's short-lived too. So again— there it is. What is there that's of any lasting value? So we're sweeping through. We're kind of doing a survey over these little themes here. It's important to note that in later episodes, we'll address wider themes, one of them being time, one of them being work. We're going to go deeper into those later in a couple of episodes after this. But right now, we're just giving a flyover over some of the things that the teacher is addressing right here in this chapter and in this section. But it's interesting how there are people who are older who reminisce and they look back and they say, oh, we had some good times. I did a good life. I worked hard. But then if we put our identity and our value and all the things we've amassed for ourselves, then we realize that that, too, is a chasing after the wind. And that's what the teacher is trying to let us know. It is fun to hear from uh, older people, retired people, as we say today, in their retirement years, uh, who look back fondly on their life of work. They don't miss it, but they enjoyed it. As pastors, Daryl, we've also had to counsel with people who look back on their life's work and say it's nothing. That's true. It's just dust in the wind. And it reminds me of a movie um, called About Schmidt, and it's the story of Warren Schmidt, who worked for almost 40 years as an actuary for Whitman of the World Insurance Company in Omaha, Nebraska. Anyway, in the opening scene of the movie, Warren retires, but a few weeks into retirement, he finds himself really bored. So he, he, he puts his suit back on and goes to the office to talk to the hotshot young guy who took his job from him and said, you know, hey, anything I can do for you? Any, do you need any advice? And no, 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 I, you know, I don't need any advice and so forth. Well, when Warren retired, he had left all of his files in, in boxes for this young man to use, you know, because, you know, that's Warren's life work. But when he leaves the office after the young guy who replaced him said he doesn't need any help, on his way back to his car, he passes a dumpster and he looks closer and all of his boxes were in the dumpster. The look on his face told you he felt like his career, his whole working life, had been literally and figuratively dumped. And I think the teacher could identify with that feeling. Because the teacher had a chance to experience some of these things, he realized that none of this stuff is going to last. It doesn't matter if it's pleasure, doesn't matter if it's knowledge, doesn't matter if it's riches. He realizes that life is fleeting, that life is and is going to be here and is going to be gone. And now that actually challenges us to look deeper into what the meaning of life really is. And I think that's part of the reason why he's writing this in the book. Yeah. If, if this book seems unsettling, maybe by the Holy Spirit, it's calculated to do that. I, I like what you just said there, Daryl, that maybe this is forcing us 
to face issues we'd rather not face. Right. But the Holy Spirit is using the teacher, is using Ecclesiastes to make us look at those things in the context of faith to figure some stuff out. If we allow this book to do what it's supposed to do, it's going to challenge us to look deeply into situations that we'd rather not look into. Mm. And so let us let the book do its work in our hearts. And as we conclude this episode, we'd like to talk about exactly what that means. So stay tuned. How are we called to live as Christians? The Apostle John sums up the answer to this question. We must love God and keep His commands. But are loving God and keeping His commands really compatible? Yes, and these two things are actually interconnected. During the month of February, Today Devotional will look at how keeping God's commands relates directly to loving God and our neighbors. This February, join today for a series of devotions titled Law and Love. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. I'm Scott Jose, along with Daryl Delaney, and you're listening to Groundwork, and this first episode of a short three-part series on the strange Old Testament biblical book of Ecclesiastes. So we've seen Daryl, the teacher, being a plenty grim, not much worth anything in life. Does he ever sound a more upbeat note? Well, here and there he does, and here's one from chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. This is what I have observed to be good that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, well, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So we have some really sobering, dim, kind of appearing to be dim messages from the teacher. But then you just read one that actually sounds a bit positive. So, I mean, it's tempting for us to rub out all the negative things that we think we might be hearing in this book and just focus on the positive things that sound great because we have this tendency towards optimism and moralistic things. But I think we need to understand it like a piano. There's sharps, there's flats, there's Major chords, minor chords, and you can't have music without all those stuff working together. So our life has mountain highs and valley lows, and God works in between in the midst of all of that. There you go. I think that's exactly right. Good analogy on the piano and on on, on the nature of music. You can't have good music without a a little bit of everything. So we don't want to uh, just elevate the good stuff. We don't want to gut Ecclesiastes of its power. The statements of faith that we do find, I think, in this book, Daryl, when you see them against the backdrop of all that is realistically grim and despairing, um, they shine a little bit brighter. But not just that. I think, Daryl, that the very poignancy of faith— the power of our faith, which is itself a gift of God, it gets deepened if we are able to hold that faith kind of in a creative tension with honest assessments of life and how fleeting life seems to be. 
So this is a wisdom literature book. Would you consider Job a wisdom literature book as well? A lot of people do think Job is wisdom, yeah. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because there are no neat and cute answers. Mm. There are no pat right. answers in that book. There's none in this book. Right. And to find faith and allow God to speak to you in the midst of chaotic situations and not quick fixes and not easy answers, this is where faith means the most. Because we're looking in a we're glass, but we're looking dimly. We're looking through a keyhole. We can't see everything. And in our faith, we need to have faith in order to help us to walk through these uncertain times. Yep. And it's just honesty to admit we can't see everything. We're looking through that keyhole. But even some of what we see through the keyhole we don't like. Right. right? I mean, it's there's just some unsettling things. As you just said, too, Daryl, I think our, our human tendency is to want to run quickly to resolution. Sure. You know, we, we like to decorate our dens with, you know, nice counted cross stitch verses from the Bible that sound like neat and tidy or, you know, little precious moments figurines emblazoned right. with a pithy little slogan that makes life seem, you know, all neat and tucked in at the corners and no loose ends hanging out there. And indeed, I, I've seen people's houses decorated with that stuff. I've never been to a house of a Christian person who had a, a bust of the teacher on their mantle, you know, with his furrowed brow and his... You know, his his lips curled, and then it says on the bottom. Ah, that, that's not a very cheery thing to put on the mantelpiece, and I, I don't think anybody does. And you know what's interesting to me? I appreciate the teacher because the teacher is that friend that you have that would tell you you have salad in your teeth. They will not let you walk around thinking that things are a way and they really aren't that way. This person is telling us the reality of life and how life's short. And we have to pay close attention to what it means to have faith in a God who is able to work in the midst of challenging situations. But we can't believe that if we don't address the fact that there are some difficult situations and that there are some things that are meaningless. And in that way, Daryl, I think really— Ecclesiastes is a preview of the cross of Christ, right? Life's tough, rough, jagged edges, life's loose ends, they don't get tied off neatly, even by God. What did God's Son have to do to redeem us out of this chaotic and difficult world? Well, he, he didn't save us just by, you know, saying a bunch of pretty sayings on the mountainside. He had to go to the place of the skull and get crucified that's what God had to do to take on this world. So because Christ loves us so much, he had to enter into this meaninglessness. He had to enter into the f- He did that because he loved us and he wanted to make sure that he showed the way of how we live in humility and how we live in vulnerability and transparency to trust in God. And the teacher is saying that we need to make sure that we understand we don't need to put our value, our identity and all these things we amass for ourselves, but we need to trust in the God who cares enough to make that point to us to drink to our attention. Exactly. You know, we saw earlier in this program that the teacher said there's never anything new under the sun. You think you came up with a new idea? Somebody thought of it before. Nothing new. Well, you know what? The, the crucifixion of God's son was something new. That had never happened before, and nobody could ever have imagined it's happening. But because it did, this grim world that Ecclesiastes and the teacher is really good at describing to us, that grim world turned a corner because of Jesus on the cross. And you know what's beautiful is that God had a way to address the situation because without him, without hope, without his providential care and intervention into that with the new thing you just mentioned, right. then the f- of life rules. 
and then we have no hope. But our comfort comes from a God who, even though he is God, he came in and he actually received the damage and the punishment that comes as a fallout of this world, but also was able to help redeem it and show us the way. The things the teacher is realistically noting all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, those things don't have the last word. You know, God will have the last word, and we're going to think about that in a future episode as well. And I liked how, how you said, Daryl, that, that Jesus entered our, he entered the fleetingness of human life. Uh, he himself died at a fairly young age, even in his day, I think. But that tells us that, you know, when God tackled the problems that Ecclesiastes so well describes, the solution wasn't neat and tidy. It wasn't what anybody expected. It wasn't even what the disciples expected. You know, they, they thought they would need a political savior, but no, God knew better. And so for now, that's our bright hope. And that has to be enough for us now. It has to be enough for us in a world where seldom do we find enough of anything. But the cross of Christ is enough. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Daryl Delaney. We hope you'll join us again next time as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes by focusing on the teacher's reflection on the nature of human work. Connect with us on our website, groundworkonline.com, to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Don Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.